Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 53. Last week, I covered Alexander the Great's defeat of the Persians, his death, and the tumult that followed in the once immense Greek kingdom. At the end of that episode, I discussed the history of Ptolemy I, the first ruler of the now-independent Greek-slash-Egyptian kingdom. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. Which gets me to this episode. Now, the two subjects of this week's episode do not have a direct bearing on the history found in the Old Testament. They are not mentioned, at least in a quotable sense, in the narrative. So you may be asking why I've chosen to cover them. Well, they both give insight into the culture and scholarship of the time and place. But not only that, the library at Alexandria would have been in Egypt when Joseph, Mary, and the young Jesus lived there in exile. At this time, though, the collection was past its peak, having allegedly been burned by Julius Caesar about 50 years earlier. But it was still there. To be clear, there is no evidence that any of the three actually visited the institution, which should come as no surprise. The circles they would have lived in as exiled Hebrews certainly did not intersect with the select few scholars who would have had access to the institution. But it was there when they were there. The other subject for this week, Euclid. Well, he has to be the bane of so many ninth grade high school students with his fancy geometry that we might as well learn what he was about. And with that, let's get started. And we'll start with him. Euclid, who is occasionally referred to as Euclid of Alexandria, was a Greek mathematician, often credited as the father of geometry which raises an interesting question, one I'll pose, but certainly not answer. Was geometry an invention or a discovery? Discuss amongst yourselves. In his case, it should not be surprising that the major discoveries in geometry would occur in Egypt. After all, they had to have some understanding of the concept to construct the Great Pyramids over 2,000 years earlier. To put that in context, the pyramids were essentially as old to him as he is to us. Like I very briefly mentioned in the last episode, he lived in Alexandria during the reign of Ptolemy I. So just after Alexander had delivered the country from the repressive Persians. To avoid flashbacks to my own geometric experiences, I'll avoid recounting all that he discovered but do know that a whole field of geometry was named after him. But there are a few things he postulated which I'll do my best to describe. First, a straight line can be drawn from any point to any point. As we often hear it, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Yes, that was his discovery. Next, with a continuously straight line, you can produce a finite straight line. Third, a circle can be described by its center and radius. Fourth, all right angles are equal to one another. And then the hardest one to understand without a drawing. If a straight line intersects two straight lines, it makes interior angles on the same side less than two right angles. The two straight lines, if produced indefinitely, meaning infinitely, but that concept had yet to be discovered. 
but these two straight lines meet on that side at which the angles are less than the two right angles. Essentially, the two non-parallel lines will intersect in a predictable pattern. Got it? How about a little more? And I actually find these more applicable, even outside of geometry. Things that are equal to the same thing are also equal to one another, aka a transitive property. So if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Next, when equal items are added to other equal items, then the holes are equal. Similarly, if equal items are subtracted from equal items, then the differences are equal. Also, items that coincide with one another are equal to one another, more commonly known as the reflexive property. And finally, the whole is greater than any of its parts. And that's enough geometry for today. In fact, that was enough to make Euclid a mathematical legend, to the point that the oldest surviving text of his is not in either Greece or Egypt, but can be found at the Vatican. He wrote more, but by now his contributions to mathematics should be clear. His findings were so revolutionary that the text he authored based on them would serve as the primary textbook for teaching mathematics for over two millennia. So that's why he's important, but what about him? He lived from the mid-4th century BC to around 270 BC, which if you do the math, was about 80 years. And, in one of the more ironic twists in his history, especially considering his life was all about the numbers, the exact years of both his birth and death are unknown, as is much of his life. Other Greek mathematicians rarely mention him by name, instead mostly referring to his book. There is an Arabian biography, but it's believed to be less than reliable. It does propose that he was born and raised in Tyre, which is of course in Lebanon, and arrived in Alexandria about ten years after the city was established by Alexander, which would place his arrival around 322 BC. He's thought to have studied Plato, but only through the latter's writings. There is something else about him, and that's that some historians believe he may not have really existed, at least as an individual. This is due to the dearth of biographical information on his life, a lacking that is highly unusual for the period and place. This lack of data is compared to the extensive biographies for other noteworthy Greek mathematicians who lived both several centuries before and after Euclid. These same researchers propose that his writings were not from a single person, but instead represent the scholarship of a team of mathematicians. This team could have taken the name Euclid from the historical character Euclid of Megara, who was a Greek Socratic philosopher from the 5th century BC. To be clear, this theory isn't really much more than a theory. But just keep it in mind when someone argues that the source of the Old Testament is unknown, as it was written some many centuries earlier than Euclid's writings. And it was written in a society that kept less detailed records than both the Greeks and the Egyptians. These same arguers would never argue the existence of the transitive or reflexive properties, despite the lack of knowledge concerning the author. 
There is an apocryphal tale of Euclid teaching geometry to Ptolemy I, where the king inquired if there was an easier method of learning the difficult subject. Euclid replied that there is no royal road to geometry, but this same quip is attributed to when Mignamis attempted to teach the subject to Alexander the Great. And that's enough about the legendary mathematician. To the library we go. The library at Alexandria was likely built during the reign of Ptolemy II Philadelphus, the subject of the next episode. For now, know that he reigned between 285 and 246 BC. So, sometime in these couple of decades, the building was built and the collection assembled. But it was not all at once a massive collection. When it reached its peak a couple of centuries later, it's thought to have contained as many as 400,000 scrolls, which would be equal to about 100,000 books. At that time, it probably also employed roughly 100 scholars. It was a large part of a research institution called the Malcyon, which was named for the Muses, the nine Greek goddesses of the arts. The Library of Alexandria was not the first library of the sort. In both ancient Greece as well as the Middle East, there had been such institutions for many years. The oldest recorded archive of written materials comes from the ancient Sumerian city-state of Ura, dating to around 3400 BC. And this wasn't terribly long after it's believed writing was first invented or discovered. Take your pick. And this was roughly 3,000 years earlier than the Library of Alexandria. And that length of time is extremely hard to conceptualize. We are almost 1,000 years closer to the birth of Christ than the Library of Alexandria was to the first known instance of a similar institution. But the Library of Uruk wasn't what we think of a library in a traditional sense. The academic collecting of text began in earnest around 2500 BC. The ancient Hittites and Assyrians had massive archives with written records in many different languages. Probably the most famous library of the ancient Near East was the Library of Ashurbanipal in Nineveh, founded in the 7th century BC by the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal, hence the name. Nebuchadnezzar II also had a large library in Babylon in the late 7th century BC. Greece was the home to the first large public library, established in the 6th century BC. All of this in the background, libraries, collections, houses of scholarship, would all lead to the legendary institution at Alexandria. The Greeks who followed Alexander after his death intended to continue his policy of Hellenization. As part of this drive, they collected and compiled as much information from both the Greeks and the former, now-defeated kingdoms. And it got to the point where almost every large city, and certainly every territorial capital, had a library. What set the one in Alexandria apart was the leadership of the Ptolemies, and the fact that it was founded in Egypt, a former empire that had documented, in writing, so much of their history, culture, and knowledge. The Greek kings of Egypt sought to create an unrivaled repository of all this knowledge, and they also sought to couple it with the vast knowledge of their homeland, Greece. 
It's commonly believed that the original idea of a comprehensive library in Alexandria was proposed by Demetrius of Phalerum, an exiled Athenian statesman living in Alexandria. He submitted his proposal to Ptolemy I, then Ptolemy I possibly established plans for the library. These things take time, though, and it would not be completed until the reign of Ptolemy II. The institution would quickly acquire a large number of papyrus scrolls. This was accomplished in large part due to the Ptolemaic king's aggressive and well-funded policies for purchasing and acquiring texts. While the library was one of the largest and most significant of such institutions of the ancient world, its details are unfortunately a mixture of both history and legend. A letter of Aristeus, a perhaps legendary Greek poet, claims that the library was initially organized by Demetrius, who had previously been a student of Aristotle. It's also claimed that Demetrius, after being exiled from Athens and settling in Alexandria, probably found a place in the Ptolemaic court. But this letter isn't wholly believed, as it does not date to the period, but to a later date. It also contains other information that is now known to be certainly factually inaccurate. By the time the library was actually built, Demetrius had fallen out of favor with the Ptolemaic court and could not, therefore, have had any role in establishing the library as an institution. Which gets me to an interesting point. Did the library need an actual building to be considered a library? Or if you merely gather many documents, is that a library? Maybe Demetrius started gathering the docs prior to the building being built. While you think on this, consider that the original meaning of the word church was not a building, but a gathering of believers. Maybe the library worked in a similar fashion. This point is argued among historians who believe that sometime around 295 BC, Demetrius may have acquired early text of the writing of Aristotle and Theophrastus, which he would have been uniquely positioned to do since he was a distinguished member of the Peripatetic school. Even though I'm sure you know this, I'm going to remind you anyway. Aristotle was a 4th century BC ancient Greek philosopher and scientist. Along with Plato, he's considered the father of Western philosophy. He was also one of Alexander the Great's teachers. Theophrastus was Plato's successor at his philosophy school, the school usually referred to as the Peripatetic school. Back to the library. The exact floor plan of the library is not known. Ancient sources describe it as comprising a collection of scrolls, Greek columns, a room for shared dining, a reading room, meeting rooms, gardens, lecture halls, overall an impressive structure. Some consider it the model of what would become known much later as colleges and universities. Due largely to the library, but also owing to the research institution, Alexandria came to be regarded as the capital of knowledge and learning in the former singular Greek empire. It was so well regarded that scholars would travel from the far reaches of the empire to study there. Scholars such as Xenotetus of Ephesus, who worked toward standardizing the texts of the Homeretic poems, Callimachus, who wrote the Piaches, sometimes considered to be the world's first library catalog, 
No surprise there, and more on that in a minute. Eratosthenes of Cyrene, who calculated the circumference of the Earth with an accuracy of a few hundred miles and 1.6 times as many kilometers. And if you're paying attention, this would mean the Greeks knew the Earth was round, 1,700 years before Columbus. Of course, there were many others who took up residence at the institution. I'll cover more discoveries attributed to the library in a minute. The Ptolemaic rulers planned for the library to be an assembly of all knowledge, and they worked diligently to expand the library's collections through a determined, well-funded policy of scroll, book, and document purchasing. They sent cash-laden royal agents on missions to collect as many texts as possible. Okay, before you write in, it wasn't cash. That's just figurative language. They gathered text about any subject and by any author. Older copies of text were favored over newer ones, and this was for a very good reason. In the age before printing presses and photocopies, an age where all documents were copied by hand, work done by scribes, similar to what we will encounter with the early texts that will lead to the Bible. In both cases, it's thought that older copies had endured less copying, naturally, and in doing so, they were more likely to closely resemble the work of the original author. There are records of the document gathering missions. For example, there were trips to the book fairs of Rhodes and Athens. Also, and according to the Greek medical writer Galen, Ptolemy II decreed that any books found on ships that came into port were taken to the library, where they were copied by official scribes. This seems really involved and showed the commitment of the king to the institution. And the king held great power, and the library would keep the original texts. The owner of the original would instead be handed the copy, so says the king. But apparently, this underhanded move wasn't just reserved for visiting ships. According to Galen, Ptolemy III requested permission from the Athenians to borrow the original manuscripts of Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. As a bond, the Athenians required the enormous amount of 15 talents, roughly 1,000 pounds or 450 kilograms, of a precious but unspecified metal as a guarantee that he would return the originals. Ptolemy III had extensive copies of the text made on the highest quality papyrus, and then sent the Athenians the copies, but kept the original manuscripts for the library. He let the Athenians know they could keep the deposit. Now, this story may also be a little tall, attempting to demonstrate the power of Alexandria over Athens during the Ptolemaic dynasty. And Ptolemy III's efforts paid off as during his reign, the shelves filled to the point that he would open a satellite branch. The acquisition strategy was not haphazard. The library focused on acquiring manuscripts of the Homeric poems. Why these? Well, they were considered the foundation of Greek education and respected above all other poems. Over its history, the library would acquire many different manuscripts of these poems, attaching a label to each to indicate where it had come from. But the library wasn't just about historic documents. It was also an institution of learning, hosting international scholars, poets, philosophers, and researchers 
who, according to the 1st century BC Greek geographer Strabo, were provided with a large salary, free food and lodging, and an exemption from taxes. A pretty sweet BC gig. The thinking was that, if the scholars were completely free from all the burdens of everyday life, they would be able to devote more time to research and intellectual pursuits. And with all these scholars, their basic needs needed to be taken care of too. They had a large circular dining hall with a high domed ceiling in which they ate meals communally. There were also many classrooms where the scholars were expected to at least occasionally teach students. You have to earn your keep somehow. The library itself was managed by a scholar who served as the head librarian and also the tutor to the king's son. The first head librarian, Xenodotus, is known to have written a glossary of rare and unusual words, but that's not the most interesting part. What is interesting is that he organized the list in alphabetical order, making him the first person thought to have used alphabetical order as a method of organization but he only used the first letter. It would be over 400 years before organizers would begin to use the second and subsequent letters in a word or name for organization. That's right, it took nearly half a millennium to figure something out you would have probably never even given a second thought. Apollonius of Rhodes served as the second librarian. He is best known as the author of an epic poem about the voyages of Jason and the Argonauts, which has survived to present day in its complete form, and can be found in a library near you. The mathematician and inventor Archimedes, from the 3rd century BC, came to visit the Library of Alexandria. During his time in Egypt, Archimedes is told of having observed the rise and fall of the Nile, leading him to invent the Archimedes screw, which can be used to transport water from low-lying bodies into irrigation ditches. Eratosthenes, who I mentioned earlier as having come close to calculating the circumference of the earth, was the library's third librarian. Due to his study of geography and his discoveries, he is usually credited as the father of the field. Aristarchus of Samothrace, in the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC, was the 6th librarian, but he got caught up in a dynastic struggle in which he supported Ptolemy VII as the ruler of Egypt, but number 7 was murdered, here we go again, by Ptolemy VIII. Then, number 8 immediately began punishing all those who had supported his predecessor, forcing Aristarchus, the librarian, to flee Egypt and take refuge on the island of Cyprus. He would die shortly afterwards. At the same time, many other scholars fled Alexandria for safer cities, where rulers offered more generous patronage. Then, in 145 BC, Ptolemy VIII expelled all foreign scholars from Alexandria, which is a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue with the library at Alexandria and the consequences from all those scholars departing for greener pastures. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, 
help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.